Welcome to The Remarkables, Grant Thornton's podcast that seeks to uncover stories about remarkable people doing incredible things for their community, bettering the world for future generations and inspiring others to do the same. I'm Rebecca Archer and today I'm joined by Francis Carter, a sustainability and finance expert, currently a director of Asia Pacific at Conservation Capital and Grant Thornton alumni. With a passion for protecting the planet, conservation Capital is a market leader when it comes to preserving natural resources through implementing sustainable business processes. Welcome, Francis, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I'd like to start by perhaps asking you to explain just what commercial conservation really is and why it's so important. Well, commercial conservation, or otherwise known as building resilient landscapes, is ensuring that natural capital has a financial value behind it and is supporting enterprises and communities while maintaining the biodiversity value. So at the moment, you have various levels of protection with conservation. You have national parks, which are the highest levels of conservation protection, and it goes through gradients depending on the country. But in some countries, that's not possible because land has to pay its way. You can't exclude land from people needing to produce food, energy and incomes for their family. And also governments can't always afford to support those lands off the sovereign budget itself. So what conservation capital does is it builds business models into these natural landscapes to ensure that they're driving income and return back to communities, back to business, uh, and back to governments. So we do it in three ways. We do it through conservation area business planning, which is building business models over the land that can cover various industries. It can be ecotourism, it can be payments for ecosystem services, including carbon. It can be sustainable forestry, regenerative agriculture, many, many options. So we look at a whole suite of options of income generating activities. We also then develop financial mechanisms to bring capital to that business model. So it could be debt uh, through green bonds, nature stewardship bonds or corporate biodiversity bonds. It could also be through equity arrangements and ownership arrangements with indigenous owners of businesses that rely on that natural capital. And then we also engage corporations that rely on this natural capital for their supply chain resilience, for their infrastructure resilience. So they actually are actively investing in resilient landscapes to reduce their costs, increase their climate change resilience against physical risks and be prepared for transition risks with climate change. So basically commercial conservation enables natural landscapes to feed into the financial services mechanism while supporting that shared benefit model. And just in terms of the kind of sectors that indirectly work with nature, like finance, healthcare, maybe retail, how can they be negatively impacted by a decline in the environment because of higher costs or regulatory and you know reputation risks or health problems related to their employees or even consumers? 
Well, basically every sector is impacted by natural capital. It's humans are impacted by natural capital. So when you come to the health sector, public health, as COVID has shown, I know there's a lot of debate about the source of COVID, but it is well documented that the transmission of diseases from species that we normally don't have contact with to humans, which has created HIV, AIDS, SARS, and now COVID, has shown a huge cost to the public health system, to wellness and welfare, mental health, and also the economy. They, every industry relies on water, a supply of fresh water, and every, every industry requires land. From a finance point of view, the finance industry has its roots in natural resources, particularly in Australia. So it may not have a direct impact on the financial health of those industries, such as finance, but your clients, insurance, it has a huge impact from natural resources and imbalances and systems, as we're seeing with climate change, is that they're being impacted by these imbalances in this system. And we're seeing changes in these models because the risk is getting too high, particularly in finance and insurance. And then the flow on, as we said, with epidemics and pandemics with public health, but also bushfires and air quality that we saw in Sydney during the Black Summer fires. The imbalance in the system that created that perfect storm for fire conditions that lasted months and months and months created a public health issue. So they're just a few examples of how there are direct and indirect impacts from degradation of natural systems onto those secondary and tertiary industries. And I would love to hear your thoughts on why businesses really need to be paying attention to this and really moving on it because of the direct impact it could have to their bottom line down the track? Why is it something that they really need to start thinking about now? It's the same thing. It's that you, you rely on a, of, on a foundation of natural resources and, and also your workforce welfare. So, for example, with agriculture, agriculture and food security and food systems rely on pollination. We will not have a sec food security if we don't have a poll natural pollination system. And there's no technology at the moment that will be able to replace that at the scale that's required to feed 7 billion people and an increasing middle class. So with agriculture, they need a healthy pollination system, which are of not only insects, which are the obvious ones, but bats, and the healthy system with insectivorous birds, which in Australia we're losing because of land clearance of, of shrubs and grasslands. So that is one example that our food systems, agriculture, really rely on that healthy system. And obviously water systems with mining, you need water for mining, you need water for agriculture, you need water for construction and manufacturing. And in fisheries, we need mangrove systems and seagrass beds for fish nurseries. The fishery industry relies on these ecosystems to be intact for their nurseries. So they're just a few examples again of how there's a direct reliance on these systems to be in balance and healthy for a profitable bottom line and reduce cost base to create efficiencies in their supply chain. It's such an interesting area that you're working in. I'm wondering how you arrived at this point in your career. What's the pathway that you took to get here? It was not linear at all. It is a circle and jumping and everything. I was in finance in some sort of form for about 10, 11, 12 years 
and I was in Sydney, I was doing the typical thing, going to Sydney and climbing the corporate ladder, working in the banking sector. And I learned a lot in that time, professionally and personally, basically how many hours I was willing to put in each day and each week. But also technically it was, it was a really good learning curve to understand the financial services sector. And what I came to realise is that wherever you can control or divert the money is where you'll create change. So I've always had a passion for conservation and I wanted to see how I could have an impact on conservation, but I'm not a scientist. So basically observing how financial services can create change in, in society, but also in the natural world was really important. So I. I left my, my job in Sydney and I left Sydney and I decided to go and work with, at the time, it, it's DFAT's AVID program, Australian Volunteers for International Development. And I worked in East Timor and Botswana under that program, basically in financial inclusion and capacity building of NGOs. And in, it was during those times I observed really the power of industry, particularly primary industries, where they can do well in supporting communities and the environment. I know some people don't really understand and have trouble linking, for example, mining actually having a positive impact, but if it's done well, you can actually support communities and support biodiversity where a government that doesn't have the funds to do that, can it can create scale for those countries. But I also saw the other where it's not done well and the devastating impacts on communities and, and the environment. I then also realised in, in this international space, which I was which I was entering in, I also needed a master's and I needed to learn another language. So I, I went and did my MBA in Spain and I learned Spanish. And um, I focused that MBA on social impact and emerging markets and business at the bottom of the pyramid. It's incredibly complex. I found it far more complex than working at a US bank where you're dealing with $1 trillion balance sheet. I found it far more complex dealing with giving women 100 US dollar loans because you've got the same finance, but it's you've got far less resources, far more complicated cultural fabrics and systems work going on, less regulation and protection of people. So it's really interesting and you really have to understand how the how these societies work to understand how then conservation is impacted as well, because poverty is one of the biggest threats to conservation. And then I went and did, I realized I didn't have a solid background in natural sciences. So I went to New York and did my master's of science at Columbia University. And that was really where everything came together, where I saw that my CA, my MBA and my over decade experience in finance and accounting and then that practical experience being in the field with solutions that are actually realistic came together. And that masters really helped me see that and gave me the confidence that, oh, I understand this system. It is, it is a system, it's a network, it's three-dimensional of social, environmental and economic impacts. And, and that's where it really took off of understanding this concept of shared value, shared benefit. You mentioned that you've always been passionate about conservation, but I'm curious how you became interested in sustainability and what really ignited your passion for the environment, where that sort of spark was lit. It, it sounds cliche, but it did actually come from my parents. So I come from an unusual background where my mum is a conservation, well, environmental scientist, but has been involved in conservation most of her life. 
My father's a geologist and in mining, so I saw both sides, but the, the core of it was science, was that it was understanding from a scientific point of view, not really an emotional point of view, and understanding each other's point of view. So they really meet in the middle, and that was my passion, was I understood the impact mining could have, but I understood the need for it and how it can actually, as I said before, support conservation and communities. But I saw there's a lot of improvement that's required in the industry. And I think there's a lot to do with culture and that will come over time, hopefully, and with more regulation and market pressure. But then also with the conservation side, I just, I grew up in the Adelaide Hills. We were always on a property. We were always out planting, replanting trees on the weekends. And we always had a task when we came home from school, mum said, you have to pick out a hundred weeds before you come down the drive to the house. You have to pull a hundred broom or gorse. So I'd walk home from school and me and my sisters would have to pull a hundred gorse out. In talking about the cultural change that you just mentioned there, I'm wondering how you think that occurs and perhaps whether there needs to be more education really for businesses in terms of sustainability. Yeah, so this is where I have a bit of a global perspective because as I said, my training was in the US and in, in Europe. So unfortunately for, for Australia, these continents are a good decade ahead of Australia in this space. So from an education point of view, that's one of the reasons why I had to go to the US because that course was available there. At the time, I couldn't find anything in Australia that really was tailored to what the Columbia course was, but I, I do see them popping up now. So this was a few years ago. It is a cultural shift in Australia. There is a different attitude towards nature, I've noticed, compared to in Africa and Europe and the US. I think it, it's embedded at the roots, but you can you see it in private sector as well. But, you know, Australians are very innovative as well, and we, we've taken strides in protecting our landscapes recently and we're now seeing a lot of leadership at the government level in this and private sectors coming along with it which is which is great but from an education point of view that is definitely something professionally needs to step up and i know chartered accountants is is definitely doing a lot in this area with a sustainability playbook and looking at a sustainability module for the chartered accountants program it is a technical area i think that is one thing that not only in australia but worldwide when you've come into sustainability people have mistaken it as oh i'll get my legal counsel to do this or it's a marketing area or investor relations. It's not, it's a science area. You have to understand the basics of ecology. You have to understand the basics of social science and gender. You have to understand also the economic side, which is where accountants have a, have a big role to play. But you need to understand how they all impact each other. Not only just now, but if you make a decision now, how does it impact in five or 10 years time down the line with a community or an ecosystem? So it's a highly technical area and I think that needs to be understood. There's obviously the, the technical side of greenhouse gas accounting, that's a lot of maths and modelling. So that's another area that needs to be improved as well. But I think we're on the right path in Australia and it's really heartening to see that people and industry are really coming on board and demanding this. It's, it's really being market-led and, and community-driven. 
And how much growth, if any, are you seeing in conservation-focused investment to really incentivise businesses in Australia to become more sustainable compared to other countries in the world? You did say that they are you know, perhaps 10 or so years ahead in certain parts of the, mm. the planet, but is there anything that you're seeing that's quite encouraging here? Well, the nature repair bill that just has, is currently drafted for consultation is a big step. It's basically this concept of private sector investment in biodiversity, understanding that biodiversity has a role in climate. So that's the other big step that happened at COP27 is that there's an understanding that climate is not just emissions, it's not just carbon and technology. Climate is a complex system of the earth and biodiversity and land has a huge role to play. And just because you reduce your emissions or you have a carbon neutral or zero carbon technology, if you have cleared land, such as solar farms or wind farms to do that, that is not green. That is just as destructive. You have to understand the system approach. So there is this saying that there's no net zero without nature now, because you have to understand the approach and the nature repair bill that the government has just released is a big step towards bringing biodiversity onto the marketplace and rewarding private conservation in that area. There are steps that can be improved a bit more, such as regulation around infrastructure, for example, in Europe, any infrastructure investment now has to take into consideration nature. So for example, if you're building transmission lines, they have to build and maintain green corridors along those transmission lines instead of clearing them. In roads, it is just inbuilt in America and Canada now, and now becoming in Europe, that you have wildlife tunnels and bridges so wildlife can safely cross these highways and they're not isolated to, to islands. But Australia is at the forefront and seen as best practice in water models and water markets. And we've had to because we're the driest inhabited continent on earth. So we've had to develop and sustain a gold standard water market. And it is seen as, as that globally. Of course, there are improvements that always can be made, but that's definitely something we're doing well. But what I know from clients we have in Europe and what we've heard when we've talked to peers globally is that Private sector want to invest in natural capital and nature-based climate investments, but there's, there's very few regulatory mechanisms and institutional structures to support them and incentivize them to do that. So that's definitely something that globally needs to be improved, but it is in the path at the moment where Europe's definitely leading that and Australia is is definitely improving. Now, the fear of being penalised for greenwashing might be preventing some businesses from communicating their environmental, social governance or ESG and sustainability initiatives. What advice might you have for businesses who are trying to authentically integrate ESG and sustainability into their business strategies? The key with sustainability is that the word you've used is be authentic. It is not to be perfect. You're never going to be perfect. And I actually saw a colleague or a peer, an industry peer post on LinkedIn that they do not want to see any companies now write sustainability is in our DNA. It's not in any business's DNA because if it were, the world wouldn't be in the state it is. It's hard. Your best writing sustainability is hard, but we're like we're genuinely on a journey and consulting experts and delivering 
on goals and metrics and we've identified risks, we've failed at this, we're improving at this. I understand there are issues with disclosure and confidentiality and you don't want to disclose something that you could be sued on. Sustainability experts understand that, but it does mean that you have to increase your disclosure and be held accountable for what your business does now and its impact. What I would say to businesses is don't strive to be perfect, just be authentic in your journey. What stakeholders are expecting is to see continual improvement. When it comes to authenticity, it actually means you put your money where your mouth is, you walk the talk. So don't say that you, for example, have zero tolerance to abuses of human rights, and then you go and sponsor an event or attend an event that has ties to human rights issues. Again, don't call your company as in it's got, if it's renewable energy, such as solar or wind, and say you're zero emissions and you're improving the climate situation and going towards the Paris 1.5 degrees, when you've cleared thousands of hectares of bushland to put up your solar farm, it's not green. There's so much degraded cleared land in Australia that you could use. And, that, and then also support farmers with diversified income. There's many business models that can be in, involve integration and shared benefit that doesn't involve clearance of bushland. So there's sort of examples of just be authentic. Don't strive to be perfect. Even if you're doing the bare minimum, that's fine. At least then have a roadmap and a strategy in place. And that's where you get the experts in to help you with that. So that's really what the market is looking for. It's not looking for you to be perfect straight away. It is a journey. Sustainability is a long journey. And net zero is very hard to achieve. And when I say net zero, I actually mean net zero of scopes one, two, and three, not scope one and two asterisk. And that's it. That comes back to education. Unfortunately, a lot of Australian companies, I've seen that in the sustainability reports, they say when it's zero, scopes one and two asterisk. You cannot use that term under international standards if you're going to claim that you're net zero. You use we're carbon neutral or 100% offset, but you don't use the term net zero unless it's scopes one, two and three. And that's why it's the gold standard. It is incredibly hard to reach net zero. And for some businesses, it will actually not be possible so you have to understand those technical areas and be honest about it. But it is a journey. It is a journey and no one expects you to be perfect. And if you say you're perfect, then you're probably greenwashing. And if you're trying to access expert advice, if it's perhaps a business that is just starting to really commit to and look into this whole area, how easy is it to access that kind of advice? So there's there's this is split into two areas. One, what we've discussed already is ESG and sustainability. And there are many consulting firms that are entering that space and Grant Thornton is one of them. And that's helping with ESG strategies, uh, roadmaps, decarbonisation strategies, which is basically your core business strategy now because decarbonisation hits every part of your business. And then there's another side with natural capital, which conservation capital what we feed into which we can help with and it's basically with your ESG strategy you need to support the environmental side and you want to in create investment now some companies up to date you've got CSR which is corporate social responsibility that's not an integrated department it's more on a side giving money 
and what it's now showing to ESG needs to be integrated. And instead of just giving donations to national parks or communities or whatever NGOs or whatever it may be, you actually feed that funding through your business model, through investment. And also if you can do it through a bond structure such as a green bond, it actually reduces the cost of capital instead of just giving a donation. It generates that return, that performance-based mechanism that allows conservation to be accountable for its outcomes and for the money that it receives. Frances, how can we continue to follow your journey and further support the work that you do? So I am on LinkedIn at Francis Carter at Conservation Capital. So you can find me there. You can also look up Conservation Capital's website, which is conservation-capital.com. And you can find a range of our case studies and information on all our uh, suite of products and services there. Francis, thank you so much for your time. It's just great to see that you're continuing to do remarkable things beyond Grant Thornton. Thanks, Rebecca. If you liked this podcast and would like to hear more Remarkable stories, you can find, like and subscribe to the Remarkables podcast by Grant Thornton Australia on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leave us a review or ideas on who you'd like to hear from next. I'm Rebecca Archer. Thank you for listening.